0: All right. Welcome to another Modest Conversation. Uh, I'm here with an old friend, Daniel Gross, who, I don't know, you've had a long career so far and not too many years. Extremely long, yeah. Uh, had an incredible startup, sold it to Apple, spent a bit of much time working on cool stuff at Apple around machine learning, <laughs> Siri, search. I think so. Still a little uncertain what I did there, but yeah. Sounds right. Yeah. Sounds good at least. Directionally accurate. Um, and uh, and now is doing the YC thing. Is a YC partner?
1: That's right, I think. Uh,
0: yeah. That's what they tell you? Yeah. And um, yeah, so you're doing lots of cool stuff. So welcome to Modest Conversations. Thank you for having me, Sam. It's great to have
1: you. Yeah, it's great to be here um, in San Francisco. Yeah. So uh, what's on your mind? What's on my mind? Too many things. Um, I guess as of late... Um, the the thing that's on my mind the most is this YC AI vertical uh that we started. Uh the goal is to basically make it easier for start for startups to kind of compete in building cool machine learning apps. Mm-hmm. And in at Apple I kind of observed, you know, that The company had an obvious unfair advantage when it came to building hardware. But it also – all large companies, Apple included, have a little bit of, I think, an unfair advantage when trying to apply machine learning to problems. Mm -hmm. And the goal – Which is data. Yeah. (laughs) So so the goal is to basically create this kind of Wikipedia list of um, things large companies have – in machine learning that startups don't, and to kind of cross them off one by one uh, to kind of democratize uh, the uh, aspect of creating a machine learning company. So what are things on that list? So yep. one is um, data, we'll actually get to that in a minute. That's, one that's of the, not number one? Well, in terms of impact, that's probably number one, yeah. Okay. Um, but I don't have an answer for that yet. Um, so uh, maybe we should start with the stuff that I figured out. Um, so one is um, compute infrastructure. Yeah. Um, so the companies in the cohort are going to get... Uh, obviously, they, they already get deals. More AWS credits. They're going to get more credits for all... Of the kind of different machine learning platforms, Um, they're also going to get credits to uh, to rack their own silicon if they want to. Yeah, with a company that OpenAI actually uses. Interesting. Um, Yeah, so that is particularly potent for those that are literally building their own models, occasionally to do on-device compute as opposed to sequestering themselves to the cloud. Yep. Um, So, computer infrastructure is one. You know,
0: sequesters of the cloud is a pretty funny phrase.
1: Yeah, I'm down. I'm down to innovate on phrases anytime. it it is the service of my AGI. Um, the second thing is density of talent, um, and so much like t- founders today can do office hours with partners like me, um, we're also going to make available a bunch of different experts um, from a, a bunch of different places, Google, Amazon, maybe an you know, OpenAI, um, so that you can have office hours with them if you're try- if you're struggling to like tune your hyperparameter or something. Yeah, someone who's been there before has used an RNN to solve a related problem before can help you out. Um, The third thing that these guys have that the kind of the large companies have is, as you mentioned, um, data. Uh, And I think that um, while I don't have a perfect answer for that for this coming batch, we're kind of just running this first experiment, we're going to see how it goes long term. Uh, I think this is an area where YC, uh, could have a huge amount of impact. So the goal would be to basically acquire and then kind of open source to the community the data sets that would be most helpful, um, that are kind of holding the world back the most. Mm-hmm. So one very particular one that I think is literally killing mankind today is medical data. Okay. Um, everyone likes to hate on Epic. Uh, you know, this is, the, I, I believe, the largest electronic healthcare record company in the United States. Um, because of a bunch of different reasons, but one of them is that they've been particularly restrictive in keeping all their kind of data internal. Yep. Um, also, the EPIC system, when you tr- actually try to use it in hospitals, does it encourage doctors to kind of record data in a structured way? So, even sure. if, if you had all the data set, you'd basically be getting like a bunch of text that a, like a doctor inputted. Yep. It's not captured in a way that a machine learning model could read it. So, fixing that. The general data problem, and with a particular focus on medical data, is kind of a goal for me personally. So interesting, on.
0: it's interesting to bring that up because I mean I know of several startups that have the same narrative about medical data, yeah. Right, but are in and of themselves startups, right? Rather than like YC, which isn't directly a startup as much as it supports startups. Like, how do you think about like? Do you see yourself as competitive with a bunch of these companies out there that are kind of doing the same thing? Yeah, it's interesting, uh, and it, to
1: a similar extent. So if, if, um, what we're basically trying to do is we're trying to ease the bootstrapping problem that a lot of startups have where, you know, there's a lot of these huge if true situations where it's like, yeah, we're, we're not sure how we're going to get the data, but once we get it, it gets big. So insofar as much as, um, we fix that bootstrapping problem, uh, yeah, I guess we'll be competitive or reduce the moat that some of these companies will have. But, uh, I think that may net, net be a good thing for the world. That is to say differently, it, Way back when it was a moat that Google had, uh, w- with its ability to basically with Borg, it had its own little AWS, right? Yeah. And then Amazon kind of democratized that and they again, lost.
0: I like the idea that Borg is its own little AWS because again, all accurate, a great phrase.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And available anytime. <laughs> um, so, uh, I think we kind of wanted to do that same thing with, uh, with machine learning. So can I just push on this? Cause I think it's a really interesting question about yeah.
0: where the value in companies Exit are well right? well this is the question is take like for instance you know if you're basically saying we want to democratize access to mass medical records just something you threw out there yeah big hairy topic there are a lot of companies that would love to do the same and have their own approaches and are trying to do the same thing I And mean, the basic thesis to your point is oh if we had all this data we could do super interesting stuff on top of it and create a lot of value yeah question though if that data is available all in an open source you know environment can you build valuable companies on top of it or does it be, or is, is there defensibility in algorithms?
1: Oh, that's interesting. Or
0: are you really saying yes, there's a lot of good work to do but very hard to create and maintain
1: value around? That's this. interesting. Yeah, I wonder if what happens is the uh the the kind of moat or defensibility shifts to another area. So you know, I think an algorithmic advantage can give you a temporary boost, sure. but longer term, you need some type of network effect in order to sustain value. So, if we use Google as an example, I think PageRank was initially helpful, but what would really made Google great over time is I kept on working for them because I kept on clicking on the right search results, right. and so that's really what fed into their algorithm and made it great. But what's the, the
0: interesting there is kind of the, the customer and the data were the same,
1: right? Right,
0: were most of the same. Um, what is it's interesting? You think about you can have networks of consumers. You can also have networks of suppliers, or you could have networks of, I guess, business. You basically end up with suppliers or, or consumers, right. right? And so it's interesting because I think in the case of medical records, for instance, assuming that you have the data, yeah, then perhaps there's business defensibility and having a network of buyers of that data, yeah, right. Um, but it's a very different type of company than the traditional tech companies. So many great tech companies were built on having that flywheel around data.
1: Well, here's what I suspect will happen is let's imagine we, we kind of open source um, a large number of medical records. Um, a lot of companies now instantly have the ability to have, say, a certain level of precision. Let's just pick a problem that's already being worked on, like radiology, sure. certain level of precision at radiology. However, the, the one that really wins is either the company with like a really good salesman who just manages to take a commodity product and shove it into every hospital's hands or I think more interestingly, a company that manages to get far better at levels of precision because they start developing a feedback loop that's quite tight. And mm-hmm. so you could imagine this bootstrapping problem will just help level the playing field more entrants can get in the door. But over time, uh, someone who builds a really neat software suite using radiology as yeah. an example where the doctor's input is feeding yeah. back into the algorithm is where the value will So be. interesting. So basically your point, this is
0: different than a traditional data collective. So in a da- there are many data collectives out there and yeah. the general rules tend to be. I'll contribute data, you contribute data. We all benefit from the data, but we all have to contribute back to it. In the world you're envisioning, perhaps... You have some level of bootstrapping data that gets you to two nines or something, but the three, four, five, six, seven—you're not asking for contributions back. You're not
1: expecting that to be open. Like people will still have their proprietary data. That's right. I'm I'm merely trying to give you sufficient nines to get in the door. Yeah. Um. And today you you, you're at seventies, so you're not getting in the door. If anything,
0: you're saying there are zero nines. Yes. Yeah.
1: Uh. Today, (laughs) perhaps it
0: was seventy-nine. So
1: there's a nine in there somewhere. Well, even (laughs) yeah, yeah. You're actually at um yeah two percent and. 2.999% two point nine 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 percent So oh. you've got a lot of nines. that's actually a lot of nines. yeah that sounds great super super accurate yeah <laughs> all in um so yeah that's our strategy there I mean tell us a little bit at Finn do you guys think of data as an advantage or is it not something that you worry about no we think about
0: it as an advantage absolutely yeah um, and for us the advantage takes many forms like one is just and I think it's you talk one is just knowing our customers better right and that's a very obvious and you know not necessarily at first blush, very scalable advantage, but it is still a huge mode, which is I know you, I have access, I know your calendar and your events, I've been, able to pro- I've been able to put that in a certain form, I know what your preferences are. Yeah, It's hard to be as good as us over time, right, if we already know a lot of those things on day one. Um, the second is like, you know, data really matters what shape it is. Right. And so if you think about like the medium is the message or like the data you have on the internet, right, fits a certain form based on how the internet monetizes and like what what the internet values in a lot of ways. These things are not valueless systems, right? right? Um, Facebook's the same way. It's an incredible amount of data, but it's Facebook design data, it's data or Instagram, right? So the question is what slice of the world do you end up having that's different and valuable? Um, You know, our slice of the world is at finn is like we're very focused on getting stuff done for you like helping you you know live a better life get things done in the real world in a whole bunch of ways but it means that like we're very rapidly building a pretty different data set of what requests look like how you have to process them like what works and what doesn't right. um and for sure that's a fun i mean that is i think the most important part of our business um there are other things that we have to get right if you almost think about like there's a factory element to like the things we have to do mm. but the exhaust from that the data is the real thing that I think takes us from good to great over time.
1: Have you ever experimented with uh, a model where you try to get, like, say, the MX Black concierge sure. data?
0: Um, we're just not that interested in it at this moment. I think that's, like, not crazy. Um, but, again, I think data... There's an interesting question about, like, again, how much the system you're running informs the data you have, right? Right. And I actually bet money that the Amex block data might be relevant to us, but it won't be exactly what we need to operate. Like, what we do is, I think, a very specific and custom thing. So that might change over time. I think it's a good point that they're related data sets, but unlike radiology, hypothetically, where knowing very little about radiology, but assuming there's some ground truth, everyone's looking for the same stuff. Right. Yeah, um, that's a little bit different when you think about kind of service
1: layers, um, consumer service layers. I think um, makes sense. How How do you think about so? There's another view of the world, which is that um, this ch- this endless chasing uh, of data will kind of feel like uh, kind of feel like uh, Nikon producing uh, you know digital cameras. Interesting for a moment in time, and then goes away. Because what will happen is algorithms that will leverage transfer learning will be able to learn from far fewer examples. Uh, And so having a lot of data doesn't necessarily. So maybe. I mean, I
0: think that's a reasonable intellectual argument to have. Um, Right. Uh, We'll see. I'm willing to bet against that. Huh. Right. I think if anything, Silicon Valley. Personally, my view is that Silicon Valley is very excited with the future and probably has the future right in the long term. But the number of years out, yeah, um, is like a like for instance, I love you know these arguments around UBI, super interesting, or like how you know we'll have you know what happens when we run out of work. They're really intellectual, interesting questions. I would note that they've also been debated many times before in history. Um, yeah, and. It's it's an interesting political and and social place to be because I actually, while I'm a very big believer and excited about this technology, think
1: that a lot of these things are like, don't hold your breath. (laughs) Totally. So I've been wondering that, too, because you talk to people about all the great stuff we're planning for today. You know, the extreme version of this being Neuralink and the simple version of this being really fancy artificial intelligence. Yeah. And they're like, oh, you know, we had video conferencing in the World's Fair too, in like 1951. For sure. And so how how do we figure out where we're actually being too futuristic and what is actually gonna happen? So here's here's my view.
0: I think Silicon Valley's gotten too popular. Mm. So I think there was a long time where the world was like pretty conservative and like all this stuff was pretty crazy. And in a world where everyone's telling you no. Saying yes is pretty powerful. Right. Right. And so someone's got to be the vanguard of the future. And I think the Valley played a great role. Now, the weird thing that's happened, I think, in the last 15 years is all of a sudden, the Valley and this futurism went from the fringe to feeling mainstream. Right. Right. It feels like a fait accompli. I mean, people keep asking, you know, my mom keeps asking me, like, okay, so, like, can I get a self-driving car in three years or five years? Right. And I'm like, no. Right. right. And so to me, I just, like, I always try to play the role of the contrary. And not because I don't believe, you know, i actually believe the future is the future, but I just think that the reality is, is that when you see people too excited, they're probably out over their skis. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, there are things I am really excited about. Like we were talking a moment ago about like cryptocurrency and the implications of smart contracts and all this. This is something I think is going to be absolutely world changing. Like now, not in the future, but there's no technology risk to it. Right. right? Um, I think that we're, there's the problem is that Silicon Valley has a huge incentive to market the future as near. Right. Um, so much so that you, you can't believe everything you read.
1: Right. So I guess maybe that beckons to the practical question. Let's say um, two years from now, um, what notable differences in my life will I be actually seeing? I think
0: they'll be minimal to zero.
1: Right. Um, so maybe kind of you know incremental improvements on many things. So for example, Facebook newsfeed will be far... more addictive and sweeter product. Sure. But one of the
0: great machine learning feedback loops that works immediately. Right. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll talk about specific tuned data.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on what will happen? You know, it feels like at some point in the future um, we'll be able to constantly be monitoring your attention to things. And so we'll be able to train our machine learning models, not just based on engagement on newsfeed items, but actually discern the difference between linger time and, whether you read it or not, yeah. And I wonder if that will take the newsfeed goodness to like a whole other level. It
0: might. I think it'll also be really challenging for advertisers to digest that. Mm. Um, you know, because all of a sudden, I, I think the way you can end up—if if you do get to that level—I mean, it'll pose an interesting challenge to large, large com- advertising-based companies, right? Because the challenge is, you know, what time are you actually selling, and what attention are you actually—you right. are It's selling. Very interesting dilemmas about technology. And markets and how that ends up shaking out. Um, But yeah, I think it'll evolve, but I just don't think it'll be night and day. Right. Right. right? Um, I think you'll basically recognize the world in two years. Right. right?
1: Um, And so do you, maybe this is an impossible question to answer. Do you have a sense for how many years until there's something that fundamentally feels different? So here's the question I would have for you. When you think about what
0: feels fundamentally different, I think there's very few moments in history, it feel different. Like this phone, I mean, I'm holding a smartphone right now that is ridiculously powerful compared to the BlackBerry I had yeah. in, you know, 2006, right? If you gave me this in 2006, I'd probably think it was like black magic. And I was considered myself a technologist, Yeah. Right? but it doesn't seem that weird. It's just like, Oh, it's like slightly better than the last version. Right. Right. Um, I don't know. I think we're going to be in that for a long time. Um, in most places, every once in a while, you'll have some crazy breakout, but I think, I think it's very dangerous to sell these like images. Step of function step differences. Step function, because they don't really happen all that
1: often. I see. So maybe, maybe, maybe the, right. So your point is that everything, just like nature, sunrise and sunset is kind of incremental. Um, that although the world if you contrasted it to today, 10 years from now, we'll look very different. We'll kind of ease into it. We'll feel fine about yeah. it. It won't feel any different. And it probably won't be largely different. But right? there are moments, for example, like, and maybe this is just revisionist history. There are moments like the iPhone launch where people do say, you know, I remember feeling like, whoa, this is, yeah. yeah. I, think that, I think that
0: the, the, the iPhone launch was the last point of discontinuity. Right. That we've experienced. Right. And frankly, the reality is for most of the world, it wasn't discontinuous at all. Right. right? Like, it, like those, they didn't sell that many of them. right? But for us but on for the fringe. For people who were paying attention, yeah. it felt discontinuous. Yeah. But, you know, look, it didn't have apps, right, um, at all, right, when it totally. launched. It was kind of like, it was a slightly prettier, didn't have three It was it was, slow. it was definitely worse than the BlackBerry. Yeah, right. But like everyone was excited about the the potential, right? Um,
1: so I guess a related one that feels like it's happening right now is indeed blockchain and cryptocurrency. Yeah, this one I think is real. And so I guess my first question there is why now? I mean, Bitcoin has been around for quite some time. Yeah, that's a good question. First, I
0: think that like Ethereum. I think, I mean, I I love Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is, you know, absolutely an incredible currency. Um, It's something I very much believe in from a value perspective. But it's taken a few iterations to get to truly accessible and interesting developer platforms. I think that's one of it. I think there's a lot of um, ecosystem that needs to be built. That needs to be built. It took a long time. There's been a lot of people that have been working pretty hard for years on these little pieces that fit together to make it interesting. And then there's also, I love social problems and fundamentally this is like an ultimately a social problem, right? Right. Like there's a cool technology that opens up a potential that exists and is usable and, you know, vettable, whatever. But then you have this long period of creating the social context around it where it really becomes meaningful. Right. And to me, there's just like clear use cases coupled with clear technology coupled with like absolutely growing social acceptance. Right. That I think it just feels like a magic moment right now. Huh. Um. But we'll see. Again, like I think I, you know, I just I contrast that more with things like VR, which I've been a hardcore skeptic of for a very long time. Not because I don't think VR will happen. Of course, VR is going to happen. There's no possible future I would want to live in where, like, eventually you don't end up with some form of VR. The question is, is that moment now, right? And I don't think it is. Yeah. Or you know, even AI, which I think I'm a big fan of ML, and I think there's a lot of cool stuff you can do in specific point instances with you know learning algorithms, but the vision that's being sold broadly across america versus reality is like pretty hilariously huge gulf.
1: Yeah. It's funny, yeah. As you mentioned all of these terms, I'm just thinking all of this stuff is going to sound the same way that terms like instant messenger sound to me now in, yeah. in like 10 years. Isn't that funny that like all of these things are going to sound like these dated, whoa, really you guys were calling it hypertext? Websites. Yes, exactly. So weird. You know, well,
0: that's why this is either fun to do modest conversations so we can look back and be like, oh my God, I can't believe we were speaking about it. That Blockchain. Way. How did we not know about XYZ? Also, yeah, right? yeah, totally. But I am another good example. It's like, look, I was using IAM in like high school, right? Um, pretty aggressively. Yeah. Right? Like, I was using AIM probably just as much as I'm using Facebook Messenger now. Yeah. Right? Um, now, who cares, right? Because like that was a tiny population. The internet was smaller than like, New York city at that point. Right. Yeah. But these things just take a gestation period after the technology is real. Right. Um,
1: yeah, definitely. Um, and I also think that uh, startups and big companies, it's quite, it's quite interesting to see Microsoft repeatedly make this mistake are a little too intellectually clever for their own good and try to like race to the forefront of technology and Godspeed, bless them, Thank you for doing research for everyone else. But that is often not the time to commercialize. And Apple has this lovely ability to like literally sit courtside at the basketball game, wait until the fourth quarter, and then be like, I'm gonna take it from here. So as an example with mobile, Microsoft had this like weird table with multi-touch. I don't know if you remember the yeah, surface yeah. table cost like 10 grand. And you know, everyone, every every year there's I don't I'm sure you remember the rumors like Apple should build a phone, Apple should build a phone. uh, Apple has this wonderful ability to basically sit courtside uh, in the basketball game, wait until the fourth quarter, and then be like, oh, I'm going to take it from here. So Microsoft, you know, had this like massive tape. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I was going to say, isn't that a lot about the cultures of the company, though? I mean, I think the interesting challenge
0: with a Microsoft or Google and, and I think a Facebook on the course it's on is, you know, their audience for a lot of this stuff is as much for recruiting engineers as it is actually the pop the popular culture, right? And the, and their engineers like obviously want to work on the biggest engineering challenge. My understanding I'm not an Apple guy, you know the culture, and I don't is that Apple just has a slightly different bent on how they think about things, and like they're less obsessed with attracting the talent that must be the ones doing that research, versus saying, look, we built incredible products, and That's that right. allows them to play that role and not have to play in the like. Race for ego game.
1: I think that's totally right. I think the insight for Apple from Apple is that y- you don't actually have to be first, and it's very much the Peter Thielism of last mover advantage, not first mover advantage. Yeah. Uh, and it's not clear that they're. I mean, I know that you know Facebook's obsessed with trying to be first to VR, so they build this you know uh, network effect of developer ecosystem. But it's not clear to me that you know given the VR products today are like. Pretty unappetizing to most people that, you know, it, it makes sense to even like play in that market as opposed to what I suspect and, and have no data. You know, Apple's quietly doing is like, we're, we're, we're going to wait until we can build something really amazing. They do file a lot of patents. They file – I mean, look, all these companies, as I'm sure you know, you just work there and it turns out you accidentally told someone something in a meeting and a patent is filed. So, yeah, there's a lot of defensive. I did a whole series
0: of emoji patents at Facebook.
1: Whoa, seriously. Just, you know, over Why is there no emoji for the bagel? This has been a key problem for me personally. I
0: would love it if you took that. As, as my personal goal for the next five years. Yeah. I feel like for five
1: if, years. That's how long you think you would take. I me. don't know. I think if you can do it faster,
0: I'd be impressed. Yeah. Than, you know, I think that would be an incredible first mission. Wow. Because you could be like, I would in the future people would introduce you as this is the guy that Totally. Did the bagel emoji. Everything else he done... Literally you would fail. be on my
1: tombstone. Yeah, everything else is irrelevant. I would just have a bagel emoji on my tombstone. No AI. No AI, yeah. <laughs> he gave this to the world. I mean, it's a big gift. Bagels are delicious. Um interesting. So
0: I think the, the other I mean, the, the, other, the counterargument to everything you're saying, right? Um, Whoa. Sorry, that's that's broad. The counter argument to the point about not racing to the future is, you know, unlike startups, the biggest advantage that big companies have is patience. Right. Right. Because, you know, if you're doing a startup, even a YC-backed, wonderful startup,
1: right? Thank you so you much. You can't
0: – that's a plug. Oh, I'll expect my 5% later. 5% Whoa. of the 5%. Well,
1: yeah. Let's not works? get crazy here. Okay. Yeah, talk about it 7%, but sure, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, forgot. <come> up. <laughs> um, no comment. That also might be funny in five years. Seven percent—that was nothing,
1: right? Now it's forty-three. Well, the AI will be creating all the companies, so I don't know Fair how enough. much you'll we'll have to get. Yeah, out. how much you're to charge the AI? The, um, so, the
0: so I was going to say the interesting thing about um, these big companies mm-hmm. is, you know, if you're if you're, it doesn't matter how good a startup you are, you don't have the staying power to, to hang around long enough. Right. To wait for VR and invest in it over the next 10 years. Right. Very few startups have been able to pull that off. Right. right. Um, whereas, you know, these big companies, one of their only true advantages and it is a true advantage. There's data and there's also patience.
1: I wonder if a better framework here isn't whether you do the R and D or not. It's whether you do the R and D in public or not. Yeah. And Microsoft, you know, with the HoloLens basically is like dancing naked. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a product that's obviously a developer prototype. Google pretty much did this unsuccessfully, I think, with their Google Glass, versus I think the Apple approach to the world, um, which is a little bit more like the military's approach to the world, which is you do the development ferociously, but you do it behind closed doors. Yeah. And it's not clear to me that you gain anything by doing the making the development public. I think the only thing you gain is
0: recruiting credibility. Yeah. Which I think is real. Maybe Apple doesn't need it, right, because of its position in the market and they're just such deep committed fanboys that at least to, to a point that like, they're going to get the people they want anyway by being Apple, but yeah. I think everyone else competing in an open recruiting marketplace, you know, when you're like, Oh, you can go and work on this crazy thing, or you can go do a very boring thing, or we won't tell you what we're doing. Right. Right. Like, right. You know how you, you can only get away with that in, in, in very specific segments of the market. Right? Yeah, right. yeah.
1: That makes sense. Um, that makes sense. There, there would be an interesting question of whether you're attracting the right type of people. For sure. Um, but I certainly buy that. Yeah. If you don't have the kind of brand value Apple has,
0: I think it's probably also maybe that, I think it's also just the public market, right? Like, you know, you have these massive wins with big multiples yeah, and public companies. The next story has to be even bigger than the last story. Yeah. Right. And that is a very, I mean, you talk about the treadmill that startups get on of fundraising. Yeah. The irony is, is that public companies have exactly the same treadmill, right? Yeah. Like if you're successful, you, you only have one option, which is to be more successful.
1: <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's the ultimate hedonic treadmill. On the topic of big companies and platforms, um, one really interesting one to figure out is Amazon, because they obviously missed mobile. Yeah. And they're relentlessly like trying to conjure a platform. But they missed it, but did, they didn't... I mean, I would argue that I spend a lot of time
0: in Amazon mobile maps at this point. Kindle, um, Plus... Um, obviously their purchasing app. I probably spend more money on mobile through Amazon than anyone else. And then a lot of their video products. Yeah. Um, they certainly missed it from the perspective of like the fire phone or like owning the interface, but yeah. like, do they care?
1: Well, so I wonder, um, I mean, to me, it always seemed like all of these weird kind of semi interesting products that they're creating, be it, uh, you know, uh, the echo, the dot, um, the Echo that tells you if you put on a nice jacket, whatever that thing is, it all's a byproduct of them desperately trying to be at the top of the value chain
0: f- or, for, yeah, go ahead.
1: for everything that's not mobile, since they don't potentially have mobile. And So
0: for what it's worth, I think those are great products. Um, yeah. I think they're early. I think there's lots of problems with them. But in the end of the day, like... I think that the Echo is an incredibly interesting platform that they're building, and it's different than these other things. If, if anything, I think I don't think they necessarily did it on, on purpose. Like I don't think it was this big, purposeful thing, right? But I think they find themselves in an incredibly interesting perspective, perspective uh, position with those things. But I think from the Apple perspective, and tell me if I'm wrong, the counter argument is: Why do you need this tower in your house when you have your phone on you all the time?
1: Well, I don't know the I, I don't know that that um, <coughs> I I know the full Apple picture on this. Obviously, not working there, but. I could imagine that that's part of the rationale. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see how Amazon plays in the world. If you do believe that, like they're you know the next big paradigm shift will be something like uh, augmented reality thing, um, given the fact that they don't seem to be doing any public movements on that front, unlike Microsoft and Facebook. I, I wonder how this will all play out for them. I just wonder if they care.
0: Like I mean, in the end of the day, they're just like such a huge percentage of the American economy and yeah. growing, and like they provide an incredible commerce platform and compute platform. And the irony is is that you talk about where will a lot of the um money go for these things, at least the infrastructure costs, they're gonna get a big chunk of. Yeah. Right. I mean Google's doing a great job, I think, by layering some great APIs on top of their stuff, but Amazon really is getting a huge amount of the spend of your companies that are working on AI.
1: Well, you know, it's funny, we could bring this back full circle to AI. Um I do think it's a huge open question right now for Amazon. Uh, which uh, for aws on how to win in a world where google offers they literally announced yesterday they're going to offer tpu their proprietary custom silicon that accelerates training time tremendously as a service how amazon will win i'm not certain yeah. but i really hope that that you know nvidia figures it out for them
0: it is interesting to watch how google i mean even as a, a startup ourselves that i'm working on like Really does try to pry your spend away with APIs, specific APIs, but then requiring you to them to you to use them effectively for mm-hmm. more basic things like storage, right? right? Which isn't, I mean, it makes total business sense, but as a, it makes no engineering sense. Yeah, um, interesting, very cool. Well, dude, this has been a fun conversation.
1: Thank you so much for hosting me.
0: Yeah, dude, we'll do it again, and. Um, this will I would, be fun would, to look back on. I'm sure we'll, we'll this will sound ridiculous in a few years uh,
1: kind of Totally. Point. This will be yeah, the Blink one eighty two of tech. Totally. <laughs> Dude, good to see you. Good to see you.